Man, I love that song. Um, especially just that part at the beginning it says, um, take your truth, plant it deep within us, just to shape and fashion us into his likeness. Uh, I'm even thinking about a quote from uh, one, of, one of the old guys, Leonard Ravenhill. He always talked about when coming to teaching, don't just pray to be convicted, but pray to be changed. And just even realizing that that's what we're doing through the singing, through the preaching of God's word, that we come not just to be convicted, but to be changed more into the likeness of Christ. So thank you guys for that. That was wonderful. Uh, well, good morning, church. I just wanted to introduce myself to you guys a little bit. My name is Riley, and I've actually met quite a few of you. This past weekend has just been uh, really, really sweet. Uh, and I know there's also plenty of you that I haven't met so far, and want to hopefully change that after service. But I just want to say, first off, it's been this is a really sweet treat for me to be back in Nebraska. Uh, Dan mentioned a little bit, I'm originally from Omaha, right down by Millard, which used to be West Omaha, and I don't know what happened, but... It's like everything got shifted out here. I'll be honest, you know, being from Omaha, you're like, yeah, there's Omaha, there's Lincoln, and there's Memorial Stadium. Everything else is kind of, you know, it's, it's there. Um, so seeing how just everything has gotten moved out here, it's, it's been pretty cool. And uh, just to find that there is an incredible church out here has just a, been a sweet blessing to my heart. Uh, we came a couple months ago when we were in town for a buddy's wedding, and we just got to sing with you guys and just be part of the fellowship. And um, even that time, uh, Gordon and I had chatted a little bit about coming back, but I just wanted to encourage you guys that it is a sweet fellowship that you have here, and not to take that for granted. So I just want to say thank you for that, and that obviously comes from the top down in leadership, but I just wanted to encourage you with that. And again, so many people think since I've been here, the Woods, for their hospitality. Uh, Josh, and uh, just we had a sweet dinner the other night. And Gordon, with his zeal for ministry, not slowing down a whole lot since we came in on Wednesday. And just seeing that how that overflows to the body. And before we actually get too far into the message and a little bit more of introduction, I just want to take a second and thank your pastor. In an age where the average pastor lasts about two years at a church before they move on. Uh, Josh has now been here for, we're coming up on 10, right? About 10 years. And just 10 years of faithfulness. Yeah, you can clap. That's great. Yeah, that's wonderful. That, that's not normal. It should be, but it's not. And so just beforehand, I just want to say thank you for, for your ministry, brother, and just what you're doing um, to be in one spot for 10 years. Now, looking back, you know, providentially, it's just incredible how all this worked out. My mom, who actually worked for FCA, worked with Gordon for uh, 20 years, about 20 years, right? And uh, also worked with Ashley a little bit. And um, I remember when I was that age, I was, I think I was like playing with a plastic basketball near a hoop and whatnot. But just to see how all, the, how the Lord's worked all of that out coming through of just how we got connected. Uh, we actually got connected about three years ago when um, your pastor and Gordon came down to a seminar or no, a, a conference that our church was doing called Churchman and had no idea they were coming in. And we opened the door. I'm like, Gordon, Josh, what's going on here? And uh, my, my buddy who I was living with at the time didn't tell us either. And so that was really good communication on that part. But it was a sweet time to just reconnect and be with brothers that are uh, same-hearted, in the same ministry of the same mind, and we just kind of got reconnected there and been talking back and forth since, and yeah, it's just, it was such a time of refreshment just to see that the Lord is not only building his church in Florida, but he's building it back here in Nebraska, and he, he will always fulfill that promise that he will fulfill his church. Amen? Now, the church in Florida is a bit warmer than the church up here typically, but, you know, we're uh, just kidding. I would give, I'd give a lot for a morning like this back home in, Nebraska, or in Florida. Um, originally, or now I should say, I'm in Jupiter, Florida, down kind of the east side, uh, near about an hour and a half north of Miami. And the church that I go to is called Grace Emanuel Bible Church, led uh, by Jerry Rag. He actually studied, on, studied under MacArthur for about 10 to 15 years out at Masters and out at Grace Church, and then ended uh, coming over to Jupiter about 21 years ago, and he's been ministering there for faithfully for 21 years. 16 years ago, just kind of even to continue the story a little bit, he started, uh, along with some other churches, a seminary called the Expositor Seminary, which theologically, doctrinally would be really close and aligned with masters. And what's really special about this seminary and unique about it is it's very close pastoral range, where all of the pastors are actually the teachers, 
and you're getting discipled by them, which is the seminary that I am currently in, going on my third year uh, of seminary there and hoping to finish up in the next couple, and we'll see where the Lord goes from there. But it's during this time, just getting to the church, getting in seminary down there, that I've really, in, in two aspects, come to appreciate the Lord's work. One, in sanctification, and two, a deeper appreciation for His Word. So it's in these two veins and just the thought of, man, you guys are coming up on 10 years of faithful ministry, that I I really wanted to bring a message, and pretty providentially, but bring a message of just what needs to happen or what needs to continue to happen in the next 10 years to remain faithful and to grow in the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to 1 Peter 2, we'll be in verses 1 through 3. That's 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. And I say it was providential because I know your pastor was teaching last week on 2 Timothy 3.16 and just the the nature of the Word of God and uh, what it accomplishes and what its purposes are. And so pretty excited for this morning how the Lord has worked all that out. Now, before, I think it's important before we actually read the passage, just get a little bit of context because we're just hopping right into 1 Peter. And just for a little bit of context on the book, again, it has a lot to do with the Christian suffering, but specifically in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, you see Peter, and he just starts talking about everything that the believer has, what he has in Christ, what he has as an inheritance, that what he has received, actually angels peer in and look, and they say, what in the world's going on here? So he starts it off with this, this body of truth to say, this is what you have as a believer, Versus uh, basically the whole rest of the book are just a bunch of imperatives to talk about how you live in light of that. And then there's three specifically here at the beginning that Peter talks about. Uh, one in verses 12 through uh, 22, he talks about in light of that, in light of the basis of the believer's salvation in Christ, this is how you respond to God. You're to be holy. In verses 22 to 25, he talks about the believer's response to one another, which the main part is love one another. And then again, we'll see here in verses 1 through 3, actually how a believer is, is to respond to oneself and what they're supposed to do in light of God's saving grace. So if you'll read along with me, we'll be in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is kind. Let's pray. Lord, may we behold things from your wondrous law this morning, from your wondrous book, the book that you have set forth to reveal your truth to us, to reveal the truth of who we are before you, who you are, the great nature of your majesty, and ultimately this morning how we are to come come to it. So I do pray with the words of Leonard Ravenhill, may we not just be convicted but changed. In the name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> now if you leave with nothing else this morning, I, I want you to leave with the main point of what Peter tells the believers to do. And this is what he says. In actually verse 2, you must desire the pure milk of the word. So I think it's important, let's just examine that a little bit before we move on to the rest of the passage of what it means when Peter says desire milk. And when you hear the word desire, I want you to not just hear, oh, I desire it like maybe it's a want off to the side, but this is an urgent craving This is something that he needs intensely. And again, I already said it, but I think craving is maybe a great word for it. To crave milk. Now this craving, uh, Paul actually uses a couple of times in his letters. We'll see it in Romans 1, 1 Thessalonians 3, and 2 Timothy 1, where he talks about this is the exact same thing that a believer will have for maybe a long-lost family member or a friend that you have not seen in a long time. He uses it in regards to believers, but you know what that is. To, to, to know or want to see someone that you have not seen in a very long time, and you say, man, I, I need to see him. I want to see him. Or if there's just been something that's been inhibiting you from coming to church and being with the, the, the brethren, 
to know what it is to say, man, I want to be back with the body. I want to be back with, with the family. That, that's kind of the idea that Peter is going for here of, of a craving, of an earnest desire. He also uses this word, uh, Paul does, in actually a believer's desire for heaven. <laughs> Something that I, I find pretty convicting because oftentimes we can be earthly minded. But he says, as, as you desire heaven, so crave milk. In the Old Testament, the writer of Psalm 119 uses this a couple times as well, this same word, uh, twice in 131, uh, 119 verse 131, where he says, I open my mouth and I pant. I long for your commandments. You can even hear it in just the description of kind of the poetry. It's a longing. It's a panting. It's a craving. He uses it again in 174 just for longing for God's salvation. And you know what it is to be parched or to be just so hungry, really, that you're like, man, the only thing I can think about is food. The only thing I can think about is getting this, this water, this drink. I need it. I have to have it. I'm not going to go on if I don't have it. And then what Peter says in light of craving is he says, crave milk. Crave sustenance. Crave that which is our source and our strength. Contextually, if we look back at chapter 1, we'll see that this is actually the Word of God. And so Peter sets up this idea that the Word of God, God's truth, is the spiritual sustenance for the Christian. Now, I don't, I don't want you to get confused because I know there, Paul does use in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know, lay off milk, desire meat. That, that's a little different analogy. You don't want to go there. What he's talking here is he's just thinking about sustenance. He says, this is what the Christian needs. This is what we need earnestly. So a good question right off the bat then is, do we desire God's word this way? Do we crave it like a starving man? Do we act as if without it we're going to waste away and be ineffective and we're not going to have the, really a whole lot of strength to carry on? And what we've got to be careful of is spiritual apathy. I say that because th- this can be a temptation, especially for really good churches, one, one like yourself. What do I mean by that? Because each, each week in and week out, you guys have the privilege of being taught expo- the expository word of God. You know you're going to get it. And you know that you're not going to have to worry about what's coming. And so you might just say, you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of lean back. I, I know it's coming, but... There has to be a desire for it, a craving for it. Because just because a, a man may have a buffet of food set before him, he doesn't actually get full until he does what? He has to eat. He must crave. And I find it interesting. Peter doesn't even say, read it every day or study it every day. I think that's important because even the legalist could be like, oh, I read it today. You know, Psalm, Psalm 1, I read the whole Psalm 117, all two verses. I'm good for the day. He doesn't say that. What's he say? Desire it. Crave it. Crave the word. Crave the milk. Now he uses a few specific words to actually describe uh, this milk. He first calls it pure. It is perfect. It is no way mixed with error. Now, we know that even physically, if we eat the wrong type of food or there's something in there that should not be in there and it was not all the way pure, what happens? We get sick. We become weak. And just as this is true in the physical realm, so it is true in the spiritual realm. And Peter calls the word the pure milk. Now, we'll get this in a little bit, a little farther in the sermon of being children of God, but... We are to be continually nourished and fed by God's word because it is indeed pure. It's perfect. It's unmixed. This is the food for the Christian. We, don't, we entertain and we, we sometimes try to be like, ah, maybe, maybe I need something else. Maybe something else will help me grow in my spiritual walk a little bit more. Maybe I'll entertain this. He says, don't do it. Don't drink from the world. Don't drink for what the food and the... the the sustenance that the world might give you. That's not what you need. You need the pure milk. 
the pure sustenance. Now, in the next part, I know some of the readings say pure milk of the Word. Other spots say uh, the pure spiritual milk. And the word is, I'm not supposed to do this, and my Greek teacher would be mad at me, but the word is logikon. Basically, it's the word that's also used in Romans 12 uh, for uh, it is your reasonable service. It it can have the word reasonable, spiritual, uh, and as being fed by God's word, all he's saying is, as a baby is fed by real milk, physical milk, so the Christian is fed by the spiritual milk. We have been spiritually born of God, and so, of course, we will have need of spiritual sustenance. Now, I find this interesting as well that uh, it is indeed spiritual in nature. And what may be a great temptation for some of us in this room is physical activity. You know, we don't need, uh, or we come across the idea of we just need, um, we need the Word of God. Hey, buddy, how's it going? Wow, that's great. I think he's trying to look for some sustenance too. So if we got maybe a treat or... That's wonderful. All right. That's great. All right, so what do I do to get everyone back? I don't know. That's a... It wasn't taught that one in, in class yet, so that's great. All right. All right, where were we? Okay. All right, so we see we're supposed to long for milk... We see that this milk is pure, and then we also see that this milk is spiritual in nature. And like I was starting to say, he does talk about this, is it is spiritual in nature. Meaning, and this is something even for myself growing up, that no amount of physical activity can actually satisfy this craving, can actually satisfy growing in God. No, here's what I'm not saying. Don't, Don't not look to grow, don't not look to serve and love in that way, but... I don't want to miss the point. First and foremost, you must be spiritually fed by God before you can actually go and work out for God. Now, the reason some translations put pure milk of the word, it's basically because of the overarching idea. And it realistically, this passage could say, crave the pure spiritual milk of the word. Let's stop right here. Now, many of us, when asked, where, where do we go for truth? Where do we go for sustenance? I believe we would, we would respond with Peter when even Jesus asked, will you two also leave? And Peter says, what's he say? Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. I think, if not all, almost all of us in this room would agree with that. We have nowhere else to go. We must come to the words of God. But then do we act like it? Do we affirm that truth? And then do we act in light of it? Do we act as if we have nowhere else we can go? Now, before going any further, I thought of maybe some, even several temptations, specifically for either a church like, like mine back home or, or you guys who are fed faithfully, what would be some of these? You, you guys have been through 10 years of faithful exposition and ministry. And in this faithfulness, possibly presumption could come up. Things have gone as they've always gone. I know good truth is going to get taught next week. I don't really, you know, I'm just going to sit back and kind of wait to receive. And yet, in light of, or in in exchange for knowing, hey, I'm going to receive something good, a true desire for what caused the change, for what caused this 10 years of faithfulness, mainly God's word can start to be absent. There can start to be a lack of true craving. There can be a lack of receiving the text and then doing nothing with it. So do we actually crave God's Word? Now, I know many of us in here, are, after hearing that, are saying, not like I should. I don't, cry, I don't crave it like I should. I don't desire it like I should. And that's the purpose of this morning. Amen? So let us strive on to growth in this area. And for those of you taking notes, uh, we're going to run across four ways to desire God's Word. Four ways to desire God's Word. 
Way number one is remember your conversion. Remember your conversion. And when I say remember your conversion, I'm of course referring back to spiritual birth. Now if you look back at actually chapter 1, verse 23 through 25, he says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We are born again by the word of God, by the truth of God. And so even a question here is, do you remember what it was like when you first became a believer? I I personally remember when the Lord saved me in college, I I was playing baseball, had a lot of bus rides, and when the Lord truly saved me, I I remember the only thing I really wanted to do on that bus ride was listen to sermons, read books. I I, I had to know more. The first time in my life that it ever happened, which is actually a sign of regeneration, of craving God's Word. I was consumed. And I know I speak, uh, I know in speaking to you that this is the experience of many of you here. We got saved and we said, I I need God's Word. I need more of His truth. We've come to realize our deep need for God. We've come to see the depth of our sin and we cry out for help. And we start to come up with questions to the text that we've, we've never had before. And, and we search and we ask and we want to know, what, what does God say on the matter? And we're no longer sis, uh, satisfied with pithy answers and cliches. Instead, we start to ask, what does God say? I think that's important because we can't lose that, church. A man who forgets where, he's, where he comes from will often lose his purpose along his journey. And there is a great temptation as we grow as Christians in in the Christian life that we start to forget that we are those same great, needy, weak-in-ourselves people that would perish if not for God's grace and sustenance. So how purposeful are are we in remembering this in our life? To remember, we, we were born again by the word of God. That's how we started. That's how we must continue. Because when we remember that, we're humbled, which is where the Christian really should be. Peter will actually say even later in his letter in chapter 5, he says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in this grace... We should desire God's word more. So I I tell you here at the beginning, remember how you came to God and return to it. So that's point number one is remember your conversion. Point number two is this, put off sin. Put off sin. And you see that from verse one where he says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And I know I, I even have had the question in my times in Christian life of, man, why, does, why don't I desire God's word as much right now? Is there, like, what's going on? Don't I just desire it or not desire it? Like, there's nothing really I can do about that. Peter would say differently. There is actually something that constantly needs to be done if we are to come to God's word correctly with a craving, with a desiring. And we are to put away, to put off, to, to put aside Put aside several things, but imagine for a second that the Christian desire is like a is like a flowing river. So, not to get too mystical or anything, but the, the Christian desire for reading God's word is, is like a river. It's flowing. It's free. It's strong. And over time, what goes into that river are rocks and branches and all other sorts of things that starts to really inhibit the flow of that river. And ultimately, if there's enough of that, what do you get? You get a dam. And what was once strong and free-flowing, it's clogged up. And what happens to to water that starts to sit still? And it it can get sick. It can start to become unsafe. So in the same way, this can happen to Christians. We can have a desire for God's Word, but if we're not aware of it, there are things in our life that actually start to inhibit our desire. And so to do that, just like with the river, what do you have to do to get it free-flowing again? You've got to remove the rocks, remove the branches, remove what's inhibiting that flow. 
And in this manner, uh, Peter actually speaks, speaks to the spiritual blocks that a believer must remove and put off constantly if he is to desire God's word. And so we'll see here five attitudes, which is going to be broken into three categories of different, actually, types of anger. Now, this is in context, I want to keep us in context, of verse 22 of chapter 1, where he actually says, love one another. Love one another. And so in light of what I told you, Peter, saying about love, I'm going to tell you actually things that you need to be putting off that you may love truly and desire God's word. He's, it, it's literally saying, lay aside, take action to lay aside these evil attitudes. Remove them from yourself and from your person. And you see, this, is, this isn't a, just a one-time removal, but an everyday, a constant, a need to do. You have been born again in the past, but you must do this every day. Now, this, this actually makes sense in light of how we are to love God and love his word because, like I just had mentioned, this is also in context of loving one another. And what does Jesus say are the first two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what? And your neighbor as yourself. So it should not surprise us then that if we are to actually truly do number one, we also need to do number two. And if there are ways that are inhibiting loving one another, we should not be surprised then that they inhibit our love for God. So there's this first category that Peter mentions, which is a general ill will. A general ill will. Now, my Bible says malice. Yours might just say general anger. And what he wants, what Peter's telling the believers to do here is examine your life and see what ways that you have that are just a malice, first and foremost, even towards the brethren, towards Christians, it's just a, an evil heart. Some examples of this are when, when someone fails to succeed, is there rejoicing? Are you happy when you see, like, ah, oh, man, I'm glad that person didn't get it. I'm glad that they don't, are, aren't succeeding in an area that uh, maybe I wanted to. Or maybe you feel as though someone has wronged you in some way, and so you need to take rightful revenge I need to make sure that it's, it's done here on earth, even though that we ultimately know God, God is the avenger. You can intentionally harm one another, whether it be physically, with words, how you act towards them, whether it be the cold shoulder, the, the outburst of yelling, the, the isolation. Hey, we're just going to isolate them, make sure that they know how I feel about them. Maybe it's anger towards others for perceived actions against you. You don't actually know what's going on, but... Perceived, perceived misconduct. I'm angry at them. Peter says you need to put those aside if you, desire, if you want to desire God's word. Put aside general malice, general ill will. So we'll see category two here that Peter says to put aside is put aside a two-faced life. That's why he groups together deceit and hypocrisy. And so while the first category is just a general ill will, a general anger... This category really hones in a bit more on the deceptive practices that we can do and do towards one another. Now, actions and attitudes that would fall into this category include lying, cheating, manipulation. Now, lying is, and we'll start with deception or deceit, and lying is deceitful because you sacrifice truth in exchange for a lie, for something else. And we can lie for any number of reasons. We can lie to self-protect. We messed up, and we don't really want to let others know that we messed up too much, and so because of that, I'm going to make this look a little bit better than it actually is. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that they don't see it fully for what it truly is. Sometimes we lie for, for selfish gain, whether that's be to, to get something that we want or to not lose what we already have. Maybe we want to be viewed better by someone. We want someone's opinion of us to be different, to be higher. And so we'll, we'll stretch the truth a little bit. We'll lie. We'll be a bit deceptive. It's not a huge lie. It's just a little, little white one. There's a rock. That's going to in, start to inhibit your desire. Sometimes we can lie 
to intentionally hurt someone, whether by telling them something that's truthful and untrue. Lying is one way of deceit. Cheating is also another form of deceit. And this can take the, the aspect of many ways, but I think for a lot of us in here with work, do we cheat our employer of the time that is rightfully theirs? Do we work for the approval of men? As Paul would say in Ephesians, working as if man's eyes are on us, or do we work for the Lord? This can obviously also show up in sports, and I'm even thinking of in light of yesterday's game, you know, not following the proper rules to cheat and achieve a better outcome. And I know you guys have heard the adage in, in here, man, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. Well, when you hear that, really what you should be hearing is, if you're not sinning, you're not trying. If you're not dishonoring God, you're not trying. However, this moves on past work, past sports. This goes into relationships. Thinking about uh, your spouse. And you have the clear areas of cheating in a relationship. But not just physically. Is there cheating with the eyes? Is there uh, a life and a heart that is deceptive in some nature? Or even for those that are not married. Your future spouse your future spouse? Are you making sure that you're not cheating them of all that is theirs? And you may think you can cheat in a small area, but but we must know this. It will hinder our desire for God's Word. It will. And ultimately, our ability to grow in grace. Another way of deception would be possibly manipulation. Whether this be manipulative tactics. You know, not, not outright lying. Not outright cheating in a straightforward manner, but, you know, you'll use tactics you know someone is, is susceptible to. You know, I'm thinking, you know, just like kids maybe ask their one parent one thing and they don't get the answer that they want, and so then they go over and ask the, the parent the other, other thing, and they're just looking for an answer. Not, not lying, not cheating, but manipulation. Maybe acting a certain way towards a friend so that they do what you want them to do, and if they don't do it, you're going to shoulder. All these things can keep us from urgently desiring God's word. And Peter wants you to put them aside. Now along with this, he says hypocrisy. And this goes really right along with deceit. And because like deceit is a lie, cheating, manipulative tactics, uh, specifically in one area, hypocrisy is just, it's like putting on a mask. You wear a mask for everyone to see, but in the end, you're hiding your true feelings, you're hiding uh, your true desires, sinful reasons. Now, what I want to make sure I'm being clear on is, I'm not saying that you just say everything that comes to your mind. You're like, well, that, that guy told me, he said, don't be a hypocrite, so just say everything that comes to my mind. I don't want to be a, a hypocrite on that. Well, that's not what I'm saying. There obviously needs to be self-control. What, what I'm specifically speaking to is a life on the inside that, that doesn't match the out. I know that if you're married, man, that this, this is closest with your spouse. They can see how you act towards others on the outside, but only they get to see you at home. So is it a life that matches, or is there some sort of mask? You could even say, man, telling someone not to be angry while you yourself are angry. A life that doesn't, it's a life that doesn't match in, in secret of what's portrayed to the public. And this is important because Peter says back in 122, have a sincere love for the brethren. Sincerity in truth. And sincerity and hypocrisy are mutually exclusive. You cannot be sincere and also be a hypocrite. One of them has to go. So Peter says, put aside hypocrisy, telling his readers to live an open life. Be open to confessing sin. Be open to um, living a life truly for the love of God and for others. Put that aside. So, so far we've seen to put aside general ill will, which was malice, to put aside two-faced living of deceit and hypocrisy. He also moves on to a third category, which you can call self-exalting attitudes. Self-exalting attitudes, which are envy and slander. Now, this category deals with those sinful attitudes which place our own needs, our own desires, above that of another. 
And this first starts on the heart level, which with envy. Because you see, with envy, uh, a person starts to covet something that's not theirs, or a possession, or a place to live, or a job, or uh, a relationship. You start to covet and become discontent. And what you start to see is, if you really work that back, all, all envy is, is a heart that is discontent with the circumstances that God has you in. That's envy. Envy, it, it, true, is a sin against others. You want what they have, but it's just as much a sin against God because you're angry about how, how his sovereignty has played out in your life. Maybe jealousy over, like I said, what someone else has or just what you don't have. And that envy can quickly turn into our f- final uh, attitude on this list, which is slander. And slander, really all that is, is it just takes envy and puts legs to it. That's all it does. You are envious of others, and so maybe you start to talk about them in a way that disparages them and brings them, you, you're just trying to bring them down a notch. Really, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm envious of what they have, how they're viewed, and so I, I might just need to you know, tarnish the reputation a little bit. This can be just talking bad of others, misrepresenting others. Both of these will indeed become a dam for the Christian to desire God's word. We must put them aside. Now, some questions to ask ourselves right here as we continue to go through the passage. What areas in my life, what areas in your life do you need to be putting aside so that you may more greatly desire God's word? What areas? Are there areas in your marriage, in your work, in the congregation of this church that need to be put aside? Where have we allowed ourselves to not be quick repenters? And so in turn, our desire for God's word starts to be shut off. I think we'd be wise to remember the words of D.L. Moody when he said, This book will keep you from sin. And sin will keep you from this book. So far, we've seen that, one, we must remember our conversion. Two, secondly here, we've seen that we must put off sin if indeed we are desire God's word. Point number three is that you must be convinced of your dependence. You must be convinced of your dependence. That comes from verse 2 as well, where he says, as newborn infants. Now, Peter says specifically, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, and he compares the milk as something to be desired. And so Peter says, the next time you approach scriptures, do it like this. The next time you want to crave God's word, do it as I'm about to tell you, like newborn infants. And so just as babes are to acquire milk, and desire and crave it, so Christians need to crave the Word of God like that, like a newborn infant. You know, you don't have to really teach a babe to crave milk. They just do it. They don't look around and they see all the other babies drinking milk and they say, you know what, I think that's a good idea. I think I should start desiring some milk too. He doesn't do it because he just, he just intellectually has to wrap his mind around, you know, I just... Maybe I should do the milk this today, maybe not tomorrow. I don't want to get too full. No, that's not what he does. He does it because he needs it. And if a baby wasn't drinking milk, man, what are you going to ask? Is, it, is everything okay? Is that, is that baby all right? Are they, are they sick? What, what's going on? Why aren't they drinking milk? Because we know that if a baby doesn't drink milk, what's going to happen? They're not going to develop. They're not going to grow. And this is same for the Christian who does not desire God's word. In this way, we need to desire God's word like a babe. So let's dive into that just a little bit more on how a baby desires milk and how we are to desire the word of God as Christians. One, we're to do it fervently as needed for life. Now, when a baby is hungry, everyone in the room knows it. 
You don't have to guess what they want. Instinctually, the child knows that they need milk, so what do they do? They cry. And a baby will take nothing except its mother's milk. Like You, you may put a steak in front of a child. I mean, an incredible filet. It's just, it's medium rare. And we can have that discussion on why it's medium rare. But, um, but it's medium rare, and it, it's just perfect. And you put that in front of the baby, wants nothing to do with it. Because it's not its mother's milk. It's not what it needs. And this is how Christians should desire the Word of God. They should long for it as a baby desires milk. Satisfied with nothing that will try to substitute itself for God's Word. I know I speak to a lot of you in here, but this is vital about where it goes to church. And many of you have probably come out of this. That no charismatic personality... No rocking music, lights, fog, machine, antics will satisfy if the Word of God is not preached. I know that's why many of you are here. Because it is. We must be the people like John Wesley who said, or we must be like John Wesley who said, Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Here is knowledge enough for me Let me be a man of one book. Remember that this word is your sustenance. That's why it's the spiritual milk. That's why it's the spiritual milk for the Christian. And now, this should be an encouragement every time that you go to actually read and crave God's word. Man, this is sustenance. This is growing me. This is building me up. This is the way that, this is what God has designed to use for the growth of a Christian. So do you desire God's word this way? Do you desire it fervently as a child longs for milk? May this spur us on to a greater desire. We must also, in point number two, desire it consistently. Just as a babe requires frequent feedings, so also the Christian should crave the word frequently. Because a baby is not satisfied with only partaking of milk every once in a while. Just, just enough to get by. And while that's better than nothing, you know, sparse feedings are better than nothing, it will leave much to be obtained. There won't be near the growth. It will not grow near as much by fewer feedings than if it had many. The Christian should be one who approaches the Word in a consistent manner. Not satisfied with partaking just every once in a while, but all the time. And again, I, I want to go back to something I said at the, at the beginning that's important. If you don't get to the Word one day, it's not, it's not like you've sinned, but do you crave to get to it? Can you honestly say, I, I miss being in God's Word. I need it. I need more of it. I, I have to have more of it. Or we start to be content with, no, I, can, I can wait a week. It is our spiritual drink, and we need to be full on it. Finally, uh, in this third point, we see um, we need to come to it not just in a manner that is fervent or consistent, but needily as for a means of peace. Now, when a baby doesn't have milk, as we talked about, they're loud, fussy, sad. But what happens to that child when it gets milk? Rested at peace. Much like the child in Psalm 131 who is, who is at peace against his mother, so the Christian is at peace before the word of God. Indeed, Isaiah 26.3 says, He keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. We stay our minds from the scriptures and that believer will be at peace. He rested. So your desire of the word fervently, consistently, and needily. And so far we've seen three ways to desire God's word. One, remember your conversion. Two, put off sin. Three, be convinced of your dependence. And finally, number four, fix your eyes on God's plan. Fix your eyes on God's plan. I take that from uh, the end of verse two where he says, Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, there, will be continual, there needs to be continual growth for the Christian every day, every year, every week, whatever it is, either until we die or until the Lord returns home. 
Now we should ask, why, why is this important? Why, why does spiritual growth matter? He's telling me that it's for spiritual growth, but why does it matter? Well, I'm going to give you three reasons why this matters. One, it is spiritual growth is the plan of God. This is God's plan. We see that from Romans 8.29 where he says, For those whom he, being God, foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's growth. Spiritual growth, or sanctification if you will like it, is to look more like Jesus Christ. And that is the plan of God. It's God's plan that whom God foreknew would be changed into the likeness of his Son. And so the longer we're in Christ, the longer that we have to pursue Christ, the longer we should look like him. And that is why we need to desire God's word, which is how we're changed. That is indeed God's plan too. Spiritual growth benefits the bride of Christ, benefits the church. We see the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.12 say that the gifts are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry until we attain to mature manhood. To mature manhood. He continues in verse 16 when he says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You know what's encouraging about that? You see the church and you say, man, I I would love if the church would do this or I would love if we would grow more mature. Guess what you need to do? You need to grow. Because as you grow, the church grows. So we see that spiritual growth, which we must do, we must desire God's word to do, builds up the church. Finally, spiritual growth glorifies God. Staying in Ephesians, you see three, uh, chapter 3, verse 20. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Again, according to the power at work within us, according to the power of we're growing We're growing into his likeness. To him be glory. In Peter's second epistle, you see that in 2 Peter 3.18, it's actually a command from him where he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. God's work in us for growth is to his glory. And the way that we come about that growth to his glory is by craving God's word. So I ask you again, do you desire to grow? Do you desire God's word? If so, we we must desire God's word in, in order to grow. Now, I want to touch on this just last last aspect as we're finishing up here where in verse 3 he says, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is kind, or the kindness of the Lord. We must recognize that, one, growth is not possible without life. Growing spiritually is first not possible without being made alive. Because the reality is, dead men don't grow, they decay. So even the question implicit in Peter's statement is, have you tasted this kindness? Have indeed you tasted that the Lord is kind? Now, Peter assumes they have, even the way he puts the, the if. It's, it's to say, I, I, I'm assuming that you have, but he's inviting the conversation. If indeed you've tasted that, that the Lord is kind. He assumes that they've come to the point in their life that they've seen the, the heinousness of their sin, before a holy God and recognize their great need of a Savior. They've seen that they've needed to face the wrath of God and they have have had to have someone take their place. They've seen that and they've forsaken every other route to be made right with God on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've done that, if so, this passage is for us. This passage is for you. You can grow if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is kind. But if not, I might plead with you, don't waste another day. Don't see this and say, man, none of that is my experience. I have no idea what he is talking about in, in the slightest. Now, when you hear me, I'm not talking about perfection, doing this perfectly, but it as a direction of life, 
if this is a complete alien, foreign concept to you, we need to ask ourselves, have we tasted that the Lord is kind? <clears throat> so as, as we end here, maybe we can just ask ourselves a couple questions. First, let us assess our desire for God's Word, and then how, we need to start to remind ourselves of our beginning, of our conversion. And when, when we remember it, do we specifically remember what we did, or do we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us? In our testimonies, which we heard a beautiful one, beautiful couple ones this morning, of 1 Peter, he actually says in 2.9, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The testimony is about Christ. Where do you need to put off these sinful attitudes in your life, especially towards others? What, what arenas? And don't, don't hear that and then say, I'll get to it next week. Where today do we need to put this off to crave God's word? How urgently do we see our need for God's word? And what, what do we need to do about that? Do we see it as our need for life? And how do we think about growth? Say, ah, you know, gr- growth is just something, I'm, I'm born again, that's kind of it. I don't really need to go much farther. Or do we start to see it as God's plan, God's means of grace for building up the church and ultimately for his glory? Because in this, I, I would encourage us today, desire God's word so that you may actually grow to look more like your Savior, Jesus Christ. It's all done in his mercy and his grace in the process. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, indeed, cutting to bone and marrow. Lord, we recognize our weaknesses in this, and we ask for your abounding grace towards us, knowing that if we do it on our own strength, it, it cannot be done. But we ask that you would buoy our strength to desire your word, to put off sin, to see it as our need. Lord, ultimately, for your glory. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.